Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. And yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. We have a great show lined up for you, as always. Um, This one is very unique. Uh, When we do shows that are more artistically based, oftentimes we get some of the most unique expressions um, on the planet, uh, quite frankly. Um, Great artists, great filmmakers, great writers, great everything. Um, Today, you are going to get an integrated artist. Um, Our guest is Sasha Corbett. Uh, Sasha is a director. In fact, we're going to be talking about his first film director debut. Um, He is a film producer. He is, at core, a dancer. And um, that comes through in the other work he does. He also is a writer. Um, But for me, whatever I pick up that Sasha has done, I feel the dance. I experience the dance, Um, and that is particularly true of his new film called Incomplete, which is, it's only 14 minutes long, but it is very poignant and artistic and beautiful and thought-provoking and brings up a ton of feeling, and at the core of it is dance. integrated throughout the filmmaking tale that that he weaves. Um, So really excited to talk to him about that. Um, Sasha began his career as a journalist, TV host, and producer at national television in Russia. And uh, later he contributed a lot of writing and journalism to various uh, print and online magazines. He is a graduate of the Joffrey Ballet School in New York City. He's been dancing and acting professionally for most for more than two decades, and he has worked uh, for dance companies in Russia, South Korea, Spain, China, and the United States. So um, Sasha is waiting on in in the wings, and we will get to him in just a moment. First, I want to bring on the co-host of the show and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, which you can read at losangelesblade.com. Um, here's Brody Ovec with um, some breaking news stories. Brody? Hi, Rob, and we do have breaking news. The U.S. Supreme Court today rejected an effort by West Virginia's Attorney General to block a 12-year-old transgender girl from continuing to participate in school sports alongside her peers. What's interesting about this uh, ruling by the court was the vote count. It was rejected in a vote seven to two. That means that only two conservatives on the high court dissented. That's unusual. Now, what we're looking at with this type of a decision coming down like this is that while the court's action doesn't set precedence, It sends a signal that the justices are not ready to quickly approve laws that discriminate against transgender people. Now, in light of yesterday, 
that's kind of a critical thing. We were looking at stories the Los Angeles play reported on yesterday, uh, which included the Indiana governor who literally signed into law a draconian ban against treatment of transgender youth, an Idaho law, which goes into effect, that would criminalize physicians treating trans kids with felony charges, okay, and prison time. Now, we did have a little bit of a bright spot with that yesterday in that New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy, kind of taking a note out of California's playbook, signed an executive order declaring the state of New Jersey a safe haven for trans and non-binary people. Now, if you'll remember, last fall, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that was sent by the legislature there, sponsored by Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco, that turned California into a sanctuary state. So that law was codified. While Murphy's is essentially an executive order, he's also following lines of an executive order from two weeks ago by Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, who also signed an executive order along similar lines. So we're starting to see more pushback. With today's decision by the high court, 7-2, to two, to not take the case up, the high court is basically telegraphing that it really doesn't want to get into these. Now, there's going to be a bunch of appeals because the American Civil Liberties Union, the Lambda Liga, uh, our friends at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, that's Shannon Minter and his crew, Little Glad, the Gay Lesbian uh, Advocates and Defenders, uh, which is a legal firm out of Massachusetts, have all taken on various cases that involve the states that have passed these draconian measures, which up to the worst of the worst right now are Oklahoma, Arkansas, which is already enjoined by a federal court and is currently being battled, Alabama, same thing, Florida, which is in the process of passing one. Then we have the one in Missouri, which looks to be taken into court shortly. Like I just said, Indiana was taken. The ink wasn't even dry in the governor's signature, and the ACLU of Indiana was already at the federal courthouse on that one. So we're seeing some pushback and some challenges. Uh, Tennessee has become another area where we're also seeing pushback and challenges. ACLU and MCLR have also filed suits on a law that Governor Bill Lee just signed. So we're starting to see a back and forth here as far as the legal systems go. So today was critically important that the high court weighed in the way it did. That's sending so, a Brody, signal down line. Let, let, let me make, make sure we've got it clear. The, the court did not hear the case. What they did was they voted right. not to hear the case. And so we Which don't know who the two justices are who wanted to hear it. Um, I haven't looked. Hang on. Let me go to SCOTUS blog and figure out who did it. Give me a second. Usually, usually, usually we don't know that when it's when they're voting whether to take it or not. I believe. Well, sometimes we sometimes we will get that. Hang on just a second. Let me take a look. Our White House reporter Chris. (laughs) Our White House reporter Chris Kane is actually working on the story. Let me check with Chris because I could do that in real time while we're on the air. And let me take a look and see what we've got. All right. It looks like 
Well, here we go. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Big surprise. That's exactly exactly. who I figured had their fingerprints on it. Wanted to hear it. Which is kind of interesting because those two are carving themselves out a niche. I know everybody is very panicked, and I'm not saying it's unfounded, but when um, they they overturned Roe versus Wade and um, Thomas made um, allusion to wanting to go after same-sex marriage and, and interracial marriage, which is completely ironic given that he is in one, um, uh, but it was only those two that were signing on for that piece of it. Um, and it is so it, it does sort of signal that there isn't uniformity even in the conservative block on the court, would you say? I mean, what it basically does is say that it telegraphs it directly. That means that Justices Dorsuch, Barrett Jackson, uh, are and Kavanaugh are looking at it going maybe not so fast. And again, the wild card in that is the Chief Justice. But Roberts is awfully hard to get a read on. Um, Gorsuch is more of a constitutional literist, so and and this is based on the rulings we've seen so far from him on the high court, and also some of the rulings that came down uh, while he was on the U.S. Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, Barrett Jackson, you know, we're not exactly sure where she's at. She's not clear on that. Kavanaugh has always been iffy on this, but again, Thomas and Alito, yeah, not a shot. Yeah. So interesting. Well, good. I mean, it's um, hopefully that's a, a signal of, of protections to come. But, um, yeah. Uh, any other new stuff before we move on? Um, before we move on to Sasha, we've got a couple of other things going on. There's actually a debate right now uh, in England over uh, a definition sent to the Equalities Ministry um, and the reason this is critically important is because in England right now, they've got the same problem that the Americans have in terms of transgender issues. It's gotten a little transphobic and ugly over there. Yesterday, the equalities boss, who's the person uh, that runs the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, okay, was asked by a reporter to define biological sex, and they couldn't, <laughs> which has now got the trans community in an absolute uproar over there. And the reason this is important is there's a letter in circulation now that will basically change the tenor and the tone, okay, when it comes down to how the English define, you know, define as they're looking at it the same thing the Americans are. So this will affect policy, and that's really where it becomes problematic. It literally could mean that if they aren't careful with these definitions, the transgender individuals in England could actually get barred, okay, from changing facilities, restrooms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, based on the biological sex thing. Having the Human Rights Commission screw the pooch on trying to give that definition clearly has now got all the trans activists and uh, Stonewall UK kind of, you know, wondering what's going on with that. So we've got that in England. So it's not just this side of the pond that's having trans issues that are getting a little difficult. It's also the other side of the pond in the UK as well. Well, I, I think that's been ongoing. In fact, I've been more surprised at how transphobic the UK has been. Not necessarily 
the whole of the UK. Scotland seems to be pretty um, progressive in this area. But in England, um, we've got, I mean, it's sort of like the home of the turfs. And, um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that, that, that pushback is seen as much more common than it does even in the United States. Um, the United States, at least, is more regional, um, you know, uh, i.e. the South, et cetera, um, and the red states. Well, I, I think that's true, but I, I, the other the other part of it is that you know the English have a tendency to be a little bit more clear cut in their definitions, and that's what's got everybody scratching their heads um, yeah. because of the way that this one is being structured. This is again something that's a work in progress. We just learned of the story; it just occurred yesterday, so we're still working our way through it. Pink News UK has done a piece on it. Um, and I, quite frankly, will be working on it for the Los Angeles Blade uh, and the Washington Blade. Uh, but it is a significant story, and it does carry an impact uh, for, you know, transgender uh, individuals in the U.K. outside of Scotland. Okay. So yeah, off, we, off we go. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. More, more and more every day. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's go ahead and move on. Um, I do want to bring on our guests, and I thought what I'd do is, um, in terms of the descriptor, um, I would let uh, Sasha's own words describe who Sasha is. Um, Sasha wrote a piece called, I Dance When the Wind Blows. I'm a big, small, irreplaceable, indispensable part of this planet. I play my own role in the universe. I'm the universe wrapped inside another universe. I am a living organism in another living body, billions of bodies. If the universe is a tree, then I am a leaf on that tree that dances when the wind blows. Yes, I am that leaf that sprouts and flourishes in spring and fades in winter in order to be resurrected in a new form, perhaps another leaf. And while I am still on that tree, I dance when the wind blows. So with that, uh, I'd like to bring on... Sasha Corbett. Sasha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, guys. It is is a pleasure. Up up front, I have to tell you about something that you and I have very, very in common. Um, I am probably as big a Friends fan as you are. Oh, wow. No way. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I would, you wrote about going to a friend's party, which, by the way, would have freaked me out as well. Um, but at the end of that article, you did have a series of friends trivia questions, and I knew the answer to every single one of them. So, you know, you're, you're, you're in good stead I, I there. I'm very sorry, but I don't like you anymore because I don't know all the answers. And I felt Well, I knew so... only the ones that you asked. I didn't know the ones you didn't know. We're in the same boat on those. <laughs> you know, I'm holding right now in my hands um, a book called Generation Friends by So Austerlitz, and he wrote this scrutinized analysis of a TV show Friends where he starts all the way from the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean once upon a time, you guys wanted to create a coffee shop where people would not just get coffee but sit and talk 
and put a couch and they called it Starbucks. And once upon a time, a woman named Martha Kaufman passed by the street in Los Angeles and she saw that coffee shop and she saw the couch and she said, hmm, would it be interesting to write a show about a bunch of friends hanging out on the couch in a coffee shop? And that's how the book starts and then it goes to the deep history of a Friends TV show. So whoever is a Friends fan, I highly encourage them to read that book. Oh yeah, no that that'll be on my radar. But yeah, it's uh, yeah I've absorbed everything Friends and watched it you know eagerly waiting for the next Thursday to to watch the show and and all that. It was you know um, very much in my DNA. But I, I want to take you back not to the beginning of Friends, but to the beginning of you. Um, you grew up in uh, Vladivostok, um, Russia, um, and like many young LGBTQ people, had kind of a rough um, going in the younger years. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was born in Soviet Union in 1987. I'm 35 now, and then raised in Russia in Vladivostok, which is Asian part of Russia, super far away from Moscow. If you look at the map, um, you would consider Moscow New York. I'm from L.A., so it's like the opposite side um, of the country. And, uh, you know, I didn't know I was gay at that time. I, I haven't explored my sexuality until later years. Um, but, it, you know, for years it's just been suppressed because I wasn't introduced to that kind of notion of what being gay is. Um, I mean, I was so far away from it. We didn't have uh, a, any TV shows on it, uh, on television featuring gay characters. It wasn't part of the literature every time that the conversation would spark and somebody would name homosexual as a historical figure, it was always like something deviant. So I think it's a pretty standard scenario in many homophobic countries and communities where uh, you just uh, see gay as something, as a threat. Um, yeah, and I think with, with that kind of mentality I grew up, and I think an eye-opening experience to me was uh, one of the first time when I went abroad. Um, I lived in Korea for half a year. I danced for a company. And then I went to Spain. Um, and it was already late in years when I was 19 and 19, 20. And that was sort of like the first time I touched the topic of gayness in a completely different way because I heard, oh, being gay is actually kind of normal. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's, <see>. <laughs> <laughs> let's explore this. So, yeah. But one of the things, though, when you were growing up was you didn't like how you looked and, and your body and your physicalness uh, of itself. And yet you transformed that into literally an art form not just an art form where you were expressing art, but where you actually are the art. I mean, you've done, you're in photography where, you know, in dance moves where you are just absolutely embracing beauty and being beauty yourself. And, um, you know, that is, is, is part of your fabric. How did you make that transition from your adolescent self to your your current art self and, you know, what was going on inside you 
through that transition? Yeah, um, I think first just to mention the way I started to dance, now that you ask, but I think this question is, is pretty much linked to it. it. It takes up two roots. Uh, when I was four years old, I developed asthma. I had a severe asthma attack, and my mom thought, of, uh, thought how she can cope with it, how she can deal. So instead of using medicine, she did not believe in medicine. She, she thought I have to do some physical activity. And martial arts was not an option for me because I was playing with Barbies, and all I wanted to play with dolls. So, so she okay, my, my son can be a dancer. And uh, at the age of four, um, she uh, got me into this little cool dance um, studio, and I started to dance, uh, folk dance. Um, some classical and ballet backgrounds, and that was the foundation. That's where it all began. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it, just FYI. Um, so I was sort of like, here we go. You have to become a dancer. And then at the age of 11, 12, when I started um, to go through the puberty, my body started to ch change, and I got a little bit chubby. You know, 11, 12, that's what happens. Um, and I started to get bullied. And, you know, the, the other guys in, in the dance studio, they sort of sense that something is odd about me. Well, if the guy wants to play with Barbies in Soviet Union slash Russia, something is wrong with him. Uh, so there was this kind of level of bully. And then on top of it, I got chubbier. My body was not great. So it sort of laid a foundation for not liking my body. And then I spent some years to do everything possible to, to gain that confidence, to regain that confidence. It's like someday at 11, you're 11 and someday somebody comes to you and say, you know what, you're actually, you're looking ugly. And I'm like, okay. And you believe that because whether it's adults said it or another uh, companion of yours. Um, so I think next decade I spent to, to regaining that confidence to loving it back. And if you look at the photographs on my Instagram, I still believe they are there, the black and white photographs that I did in 2020 during the pandemic in Miami with um, photographer Ricky. And we were like sort of I'm fully naked in a studio and then we are in a sunrise. I'm jumping uh, from the water. And those are, I mean, I am biased because I'm in those pictures, but those uh, images are just, Stunning. I'm like, man, I'm hot. I mean, or I used to be. Back in We're in 2023 now. It's a different story. But I think it was just like this constant, um, it was two things. It's regaining the confidence and seeking for validation. And though both aspects was not only connected to my body, it also went in a personal life and a professional life that's striving for validation and Somebody tells you you're beautiful. And, you know, I'm not the only one in the room. Go to actors, other dancers. All of them can look damn hot and, and inside of them can be utterly insecure. And when I, see, when I see them, I sort of like, I'm not telling that to them. I'm like, I understand you. I get you. I, I've been there and I am there. Um, that makes sense what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. In fact, what I would say, though, um, on those pictures, which you are absolutely hot in those pictures and beautiful, but the, the and, you know, obviously your body in the pictures is gorgeous, 
But the thing that is really impactful to them is more than that because it's not just, you know, like a, a hot picture of a hot guy. It's the art and the position and the form that you become in those pictures. And those those are so much more than just, you know, a, you know, like a hot model posing there. I mean, the expression and the grace of the, the image you become, which isn't just the great picture, it's what's in front of the camera, um, is impactful. I mean, that's what I see. It's like there's soul and spirit that is part of that and being reflected in that as well. Um, and I think that's hugely significant. Just to add one thing to it, and the, all those words are kudos to Ricky, the photographer, which I truly, Ricky Kohete, I think he is quite genius in what he does. Um, I remember that photo shoot was inspired by Andrei Kanchalovsky's film called Sin. And the film Sin is about Michelangelo and how he was creating sculptures. Um, and it came out during the pandemic as well. And I remember I was watching this film and got inspired. And therefore, we created such such images later when I was in Miami. But, you know, but it's everything you're saying, I can just say, yes, yeah, yeah, you're right. And thank you. And thank you. But I think one of the reasons why I left dance, I, do, I no longer dance. I'm 35 now. I moved to filmmaking. I moved to yoga. Uh, and one of the reasons I did that because I did not want to depend on my body. You mm-hmm. start from just dancing, and then you move in into the phase of hate in your body, and then you move into the phase of worship in your body. And it's like all this up and down cardiogram, and then you just understand that you constantly depend. You're celebrated for how you look, for how you move. Um, I was going to the National um, Ballet of Canada the other day, two nights ago, and I was just watching the audience who was entering the New York City Center and taking their seats, and I was telling my friends. So I see those two types of people here who came, A, dancers, and B, who fetishize dancers. I mean, I was rough, and... I'm, I was just trying to make a point. It's not entirely true. But what I was trying to say is that how much pressure does one artist who works with a physical appearance have because he's celebrated for how he looks like? And uh, at some point, I yeah, just didn't I, want that. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a really good point. And, um, and, and I guess that's sort of what I was seeing a little bit beyond that in – in the images and in the films. I mean, I've seen you dance um, um, in, in different things as well. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's, you know, definitely the beautiful body is there. And I totally understand. I mean, it's like other, any other feature of artists, um, like uh, a model or a young actor or any of these people that get worshipped at a young age. It's like, it's all, they're being worshipped for the superficial things and not for their depth. And when the superficial things fall away, then you have crisis and you have identity crisis and you have all, all those sorts of things. I, I, from your work, I see a transcendence um, from that and leading to your, your current film, Incomplete. Um, because one of the questions I was going to ask you, which you've already sort of answered in, uh, <laughs> in, in a certain way, is um, because the one of the lead actors in the movie I see as representing you, and um, he even looks 
like you um, and is does a dance. And my question was going to be, why? What? What was your thought process on not taking that role on yourself? Um, but I think you already answered that. And well, the <laughs> other piece of it is, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add to this. I remember a couple uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I sent a poster to my mom, and the poster features Pontus Lidberg, who is the lead character in my film, uh, in bed, half naked. Um, and my mom sent me back <laughs> on WhatsApp, and she's like, oh, baby, you look gorgeous. And I'm like, oh, that's the highest compliment. If my mom, <laughs> if my mom <laughs> thinks that my the lead actor is me, I was like, mom, you're the best. And uh, what's interesting, I'm 35, and Pontus, He's 46 years old, and um, it, it, it was my intention. I deliberately looked for a mature dancer. Um, we will talk a little bit more about the theme of my film, but it ex- explores the sense of yearning uh, for someone that you've never met, a sense of misconnection with someone, and I wanted to talk about this topic. It would be different if a lead character would be 20-something mm-hmm. versus yeah, when he's mid-40s. Yeah, uh, because the yearning and longing you're experiencing for someone you've never met at 20 is different than at 40-something. I'm not saying it's, it's discredited, or, but it's just different. So I wanted to bring this depth. And uh, the reason I did not take part in the film, I wrote it for myself. I wrote it at the time when I was signed, I was signed with the agency. I did not get any dance gigs, any acting roles. And I was like, I'm not going to wait anymore. I want to write material for myself. I will direct it. I will star in it. I was ambitious uh, to do that all. And then pandemic happened. I wrote this material in 2018, five years ago, this little short film. And I started to shot in 2020. And then, you know, the uh, global event happened. I didn't do it. But during the pandemic, I stopped dancing. So I was no longer in the same shape. And honestly, looking back, I'm so glad I did not do that. I would not have made this film being inside and outside, meaning being in front of camera and behind camera, at the same time, remind you, this is my first film. So you can imagine how much unknown comes with it and things you need to figure oh, out. Right. So I was very happy. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, 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 and if, if I were in your place, I would, I'm sure, make the same choice because it's like, okay, I've got one job here. I want to focus on it. I don't know when I see films that people – star in and direct themselves um i don't know how they do it because it's like okay you're how can you give yourself completely to either one of those positions in the film when you're having to bounce back and forth so yeah that was that i think you you made a good choice i guess the thing that impacted me was first of all the 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 man who you did cast in that is absolutely wonderful so there was no it, it did not detract from the piece at all, but it, it was it was interesting because the dance in the film to me has your fingerprint on it. It's like it's not you know even though other people are doing the dancing, it's like it is the same beauty 
that I see you express in things when it is actually your body doing it. And it was just really impactful of how fluid that occurs in, in, in the piece. Um, I want to go to the theme, though, of the, the film, which you've already alluded to, because um, it's, it's, the film is called Incomplete, and it is around the yearning of a couple of the characters um, for, you know, not to be lonely, not to be alone. Um, I took it personally as the search for a soulmate. Um, what are your thoughts on soulmates and um, how did that impact your, your scripting of the film? Um, question led me to, to, to do the film. And the reason was that I couldn't find the exact answer. I remember writing a script and talking about it at parties. And the conversation would go something like this, blah, 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 blah. So what are you up to? And like, oh, I'm writing the script about love and misconnection. Huh, tell me more about it. Well, it's a love letter of longing for someone you've never met. Oh, wow. And uh, it explores uh, the question, do we need another person in life to feel complete or are we missing connection with ourselves? So what the answer? And it would be like from party to party, from conversation to conversation, everyone would instantly want the answer. I totally get it. I want the answer myself. And my answer was like, if I knew the answer, I wouldn't have made the movie. I would just answer my question to my own and I, I would go to bed, you know? Um, so the, the film was an excuse to explore the topic and to understand, and it just turned into this you know, uh, years of research. I interviewed a uh, married couple. I interviewed a couple in an open relationship, single people from United States, Europe, Russia, you name it. Um, and so what's my take on soulmateship right now? I think I explore it in, in film. And I think I would, there is no spoiler, but the lead character who asked those questions like, how can I miss you? I miss you so much, he said, but how can I miss you if I've never met you? And there's one line that was so important to me in a film when he says, um, we talk a lot about soulmateship as a one single entity, right? So, and I think your question, uh, when you ask, like, so what's your, what's your thoughts on soulmates? And I right away assume that you're talking about like one human being. And so when you watch the film in the voiceover, which the film has no dialogue, it's voiceover only in his sort of thoughts. And he said, what if you split your soul per thousands of pieces and every single person that I met and I found even the slightly, slightest bit attractive is you. So it instantly that idea destroys the notion of a soulmate as a single entity because what if you do meet a number of people in your life and with all of them you felt somehow connected and each connection felt authentic why why would you question or would you say no 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 that's not it because it's not was a full com connection it's not real i'll wait for the one that will come someday yeah, no, I actually relate to that because uh, I've had enough relationships and loves in my life that when I look back, I there are a couple that are 
I would consider soulmates, and there are a number of them. They're, and they're, I, I think your point is really valid, is to take the mindset out of the idea that there's just one and that even the ones that we have are just aspects of our soul. They're not necessarily everything our soul is about, that we're, we're bigger and broader than that. Um, in in the film, you, there are there's a blend between dance and filmmaking and acting um, that all come together. And I'm not going to say much more than that, other than that people need to see it and experience it. Um, there is one part when the lead character is walking through the park, sees somebody um, playing chess, and um, you know, in his mind, has kind of a, a really intense interaction with the person on different levels with different symbolisms. What was that interaction to you about in, in writing it as a script? Well, in all the dance, um, the film, I use the dance as an element in film, as a uh, element of fantasy. Uh, we often fantasize when we go out meet different people, and uh, because dance is my language, it felt right to use it as an element of fantasy. So in, in the film, and honestly, when it comes to my film, I don't believe in spoilers, in spoilers because it's a, it's a 15 minutes movie film, and B, I think it's interesting enough to watch even if you know um, everything about it. So I will speak directly about it because in film we have um, – three dancers the lead character has, and each of them represents a specific kind of connection. Um, when uh, we speak for a loved one, a soulmate, or a relationship, we usually crave for three types of connections. One is the intellectual, then the heart one, the spiritual, and the sexual one, the animal. So in the film, I wanted to use dance and explore those three types of connections. So the first scene explores the heart connection and the soundtrack plays an important role. It's, it has the heartbeat. The second one is the chess scene that you're asking me about and uh, the sound for it is the ticking clock and I wanted to explore the intellectual connection. When two minds meet each other and it can be, it can be very brainy but it also can be very sexy at the same time. Think about any... Uh, fiery conflict with the other person you had and at the end of it like gosh I wish we could just take our clothes off <laughs> um, and the third connection the third one was the uh, the, uh, the sexual one and uh, that dance I used the sound of a pumping sort of breath that we usually have naturally coming out of us when we are making love or having sex so with a chess team, it wasn't intellectual. When it's like two minds meet each other and playing with each other, fighting and finding ways how to navigate this chess game. And chess felt like a great um, symbol for mind, maybe because I love Queen's Gambit so much. I don't even know how to play chess. So when I was hiring actors, I was like, you guys better know how to do it because I have no idea. And thank God they knew. Thank God. Well, it's, it's interesting you didn't know how to play it because it, it really is um, very, to me, significant in that moment in the film because 
chess is a great analogy for what happens in relationships when relationships get get uh, complicated um, because you're anticipating the person's next move. You know, there are different obstacles that you have to figure out how to move around, and you have to kind of strategize how to get your point in place to to get through, um, you know, which, you know, it's, and it's, it's not that relationships should be chess games, um, but they become that in, in many cases. Um, so it, it was actually, I thought, just completely appropriate and well thought to, to be in that place. So um, since, since we're going, going spoiler alert wild here, um, the, um, the lead character uh, has written his, his longings in a journal and is found by another character who then is in a phone booth trying to get a hold of him. Um, those images were really profound to me. One, and this is maybe a little bit of a bizarre one, but being in a phone booth um, sort of was very nostalgic for me since phone booths aren't really part of people li- people's lives anymore. What And it's very kind of film noir, um, and, you know, in its presentation. What what was the thinking behind that, those images? You know, I always wanted to uh, – phone booth was um, an idea that I came up with back in 2018. Um, and I think to mention the date is important here. I'll, uh, I'll explain in a second. I wanted to create that fantasy place where one person can walk in dial the number to another person that they've never met, to a loved one that they've never met, in a hope that someone will pick up. Or at least you can leave a voice message to say, to tell the person you've never met what do you want to say, like each one has something, has something to say. I later learned, and my, remind you, I, I moved to the United States in 2012, so I was 24. But I later learned that there was this Craigslist kind of um, graph or post, I don't know what's the right word for it, where you could sort of leave the message and say, like, you know, like, a man in 35 looking for this, mm-hmm. this, this, and that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there, Craigslist had – actually, there were a couple of things on Craigslist. One was – personal uh, ads like that where you can say, you know, I'm looking for, you know, uh, you know, hot guy who likes this and likes that and et cetera. But there was also a part on Craigslist that was probably even a little more specific like that where you would actually see somebody like go, hey, um, if, if you're looking for this ad, I saw you outside this store at 3 o'clock and we locked eyes. And I think you were interested, and you walked off. But here's my number if, if this is you. Yeah. I'm talking about this one, and I believe it's called something like missed connection or something. That was very right, right. right up my app. Uh, the film explores that search for the one that you've never met or the one that you might have met and, and, and for some reason missed the connection. So that was the idea behind the phone booth, that you have this chance to go in to speak to the loved one you've never met. Later, in a couple of years, I learned, and I might be wrong with the facts, but I think there was some big um, 
weather earthquake or something in, in Japan. And there were a number of people that died. Uh, and their relatives or their loved ones, they, they, cope, they didn't know how to cope with the grief. And so someone installed a phone booth where you could go and pick up the phone and sort of talk to the loved one that, that you lost. Oh, and that oh. was the idea behind that someone can sort of, you know, cope with a, with a loss in this kind of way. To me, missing that person that you've never met is a form of grief, is a form of lacking something and yearning for it. And therefore, the idea of a phone booth is that what if you had a chance to go and talk to someone you've never met or you feel like you lost? So that's where it wow, comes that, from. Yeah. Yeah. That, wow. I'm, I'm very glad I asked that question. That is, that is really profound and, and wonderful. Um, and a lot of those themes are picked up in the, the rest of the film as well. I mean, I definitely got the, that feeling of, you know, the, the person you yearn for could be anywhere around you when he's in the coffee shop. And, you know, the interaction with the guy who's just standing behind him, you know, it's like, you know, they, you know, we, we don't know what's in the walls of the other people who are in our close vicinity even, um, you know, so it's, you know, very deep and thoughtful um, all the way around. Um, where, where can people see the film? Where, what is the distribution plan for it? You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm still figuring it out, but uh, I submitted film to a number of festivals. I'm waiting for a response from Cannes Film Festival and Tribeca, New York Film Festival. My, it's, um, yeah, I think I submitted my film to 25 international film festivals from big ones to very small ones that LGBTQIA-focused, dance-focused, art-focused. I haven't gotten any response yet, and we shall see. I hope that people will see this film in one way or another. In a worst-case scenario, um, someday I will post it on Vimeo and I will open link, and I would love this film to be accessible to everyone. And uh, I think it's a universal story. It's not a, it's not a gay story. It's not a straight story. I think it's many people, whether you're coupled or not, can relate to this feeling. And if they cannot relate right now, most likely they did once in their life. So... Well, I yeah, I, I have to tell you, um, I get the opportunity on the show to talk to a lot of filmmakers and a lot of filmmakers who've had films that have gone through film festivals, and this is one of the best. So, you know, I would be absolutely shocked if you do not get um, interest and enthusiasm coming your way. I know a lot of those take time, and they have to watch a lot of films and all of that sort of stuff, but... Um, this is superior quality and very moving and um, very thought-provoking. So I'm, I am sure things are going to come your way. Uh, that that would absolutely shock me if if you don't hear something or don't don't hear actually from most. Um, but um, but we will we will Thank watch for that. And, um, and, uh, just to say on that note, the whole idea of making a film was to end the conversation or to continue the conversation. And the fact that you and I are talking today, to me, that's already the result. So even, yeah. even if no one will see the film, at least they will hear our talk, which to me is already is. It's good enough, I would say. 
<laughs> well, let's let's not leave it there. It's good, but it's yeah. like I want better for you. I want <laughs> I want it seen and experienced and everything else. It's like and, you know, it's like uh, I do not want this to be the end all of it because it it is. It's, it's like you think about it, and I would say. You know, I don't want to speak for everybody on the planet because everybody on the planet is very, very different and we're all very unique. But um, I, I can't believe that many, many people do not know the feeling of patting the bed next to them and wondering, you know, who could be there, you know, um, with them and for them. You know, so it it does speak to, I think, a universal longing. And um, I think somebody watching the film it just makes them aware of that part of their own humanity. Um, plus, it's just beautiful to watch. I mean, it's the the emotion, and you know, and, and I've seen this in your other dance. Is like the emotion that is expressed and the grace by which you express it, and what you physically become as you're doing it is very moving. Um, and so, you know, I want other people to experience that. Um, and, and see it. Um, Sasha, I want to go to your um, production company because you support a lot of other films that are all kind of the artistic themes we've been talking about. Um, what are your goals for your production company and, and where do you want that to go? Oh, I was not prepared for that question. What I <laughs> what I do know is that um, let me answer it differently to you because um, I think the, my, my last project is this film, Incomplete. And uh, what I hope for that this short film, this small film, will open doors to make another project. I do write right now an Incomplete TV series, like a mini, mini series, six episodes per 15 minutes. I would say like a Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag inspired ones that I definitely want to do for myself and with other people. But I do like to support young talent. Uh, and by young, I don't mean the age. By young, meaning them trying themselves in, new, in a new creative way. I've been a curator for photo exhibitions. I was producer in music videos. And I've been an actor in some films. So if I find some young talent and I see their ambition and passion that I experience, I like to support it in any way possible, bringing my experience working in distribution, film distribution, or film publicity and PR, or in film production. So I understand it's a kind of a vague answer, but I think it's also a, a, a general answer to give support to others, other filmmakers and artists that come my way. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's great because it, it just uh, leaves it open. But obviously, there's a mission there um, that you're open to opportunity for, which is excellent. Um, what uh, what beyond incomplete um, do you envision for yourself? What other stories do you want to tell that's inside you that you haven't yet created? I don't think I have anything to say at the moment, to be honest. And I feel quite comfortable with that. I understand the pressure that young artists and generally filmmakers experience. They finish one project and even though it hasn't been released yet, there is some expectations from them to come up with something new. 
And I can honestly say I have nothing to say at the moment. And I feel absolutely comfortable with that. <laughs> Excellent. And after making Incomplete, because the the longing in the film is is profound, um, and you've done writing about your relationships coming out, your first love, you know, you've, you've, you've written about that in the past. Um, what, what has changed for you, if anything, after making Incomplete? Do you feel more complete having created this? Hmm. I, should, I, I need to workshop the answer. Um, you know, Lady Gaga was such a great school when she was promoting A Star is Born. Do you remember that viral video where she was saying that a hundred people in a room and ninety nine don't see you and one see you? I need to come up with something like Lady Gaga thing and I still haven't. Um I definitely did this film for the person that I've never met. And I've never met them. I think Although now I question, even though they will receive the message of what's going to happen next, and maybe leaving in uh, unknown, sometimes feel more safe and comfortable than living in uh, um, in already when you have the answer. Because who said that it's not the answer what's interesting, it's the question. I feel mm-hmm. more comfortable right now leaving the question. This is my answer to you. Making incomplete film made me more comfortable to leave the question rather than constantly being hunger for the answer. I, I, no, I think that's true, and it's, it's parallel to the, 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 it may be a little bit cliche, but the statement, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Um, you know, so I think, and I think that is is a really true statement about life. Um, well, Sasha, I want to thank you primarily for your artistry and everything you've done and the expression that's out there. Um, what is the website that people can find out more and see um, your portfolio work? Yeah, it's called Call Me Sasha. It couldn't come. Up, I couldn't come up with a more creative statement as. <laughs> Call me Sasha. And like if people wonder what's the spelling of Sasha, and I always say, oh, it's like Sasha Obama. And they smile and they know how to spell it. So call me Sasha. <laughs> call me Sasha. And yeah, go out there and there are uh, clips of the films and uh, writing. And it's, um, it's to explore. So definitely do that. So I want to thank you for being you. I want you to thank, thank you for coming on our show today. Um, and is there any question I haven't asked you that we should have talked about? Well, I truly believe that, you know, I think French people say that you have to leave dinner table a little bit hungry. Therefore, if you forgot something to ask, it gives us an excuse to come back to your podcast and have another conversation one day. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. That would maybe something. <laughs> That would be awesome. I would love that. So, yes, you are, you're definitely invited back. So, um, and I'm very excited. I want to hear more about what, because I'm, I'm anticipating a very good reaction to the film. I'm anticipating, you know, uh, film festivals in your future. 
Um, and people need to see this. They need to experience it. It's, it is, it is moving and, um, it's very personal. It's like, I think when people watch this film, the reaction won't be intellectual. I think it will be emotional. And I think you actually had a quote where you said it, it's not the tears, it's the feelings. And, uh, I, I think feelings are the byproduct of, of watching the film. So again, yeah. thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, um, yeah, um, you're very and, welcome. I mean it, and I thank you for giving the space and time, and for your thought-provoking questions. Clearly, I was not ready for them, and I, I kind of like it. It create, creates the space for continuity. So thank you so much for truly seeing the film. Um, I often say, people, I hope you'll connect to the film on a heart level. And every time I say it, I mean it, because you can collect, uh, connect on any level, but if we can open our hearts and truly see the, uh, the, any piece of art that, that eradicates sarcasm and cynicism and uh, because sarcasm usually closes us from truly seeing things. So it sounds like you did open your heart and watched it with a heart open, and I wish for anyone to will experience this film and thank you very much truly truly thank you for this talk i had so much fun oh uh, me too and um you're you are beautiful your work is beautiful and thank you for making the world even more beautiful um with it um and again folks watch for it when it comes out um i'm sure we'll we'll cover it in the la blade when um it hits some film festivals and um tell you more in the future and uh sasha we're going to look for for more from you when you become so inspired. Unfortunately, that is it for us for today. We are out of time. We will be back again next week. Don't forget to check out the Los Angeles Blade, losangelesblade.com. There are news stories up every single day. It is, in fact, it just won the prestigious award of um, outstanding journalism uh, from GLAAD. Um, so it has the it is the award-winning journalism that you need to check out every day, and that of course is under the helms of um, editor-in-chief Brody Levesque. And thank Brody for all of his work on this show. Um, until next week, in which we will have another great show, um, we will talk to you again later. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.